Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Hello there, you GCA audio listening type of person, you. This morning, after I had been talking for about 20 minutes, inexplicably, the power went out in the GCA building for just a moment, and then it came back on. And when it did that, it effectively erased the digital recording of everything I had said for those first 20 minutes. And really, you kind of need, in order to understand the rest of this message, you need those 20 minutes of introductory comments. Anyway, so what I'm going to do is sit here in front of my computer with the microphone on and repeat as much of it as I can remember, and then we'll rejoin the live broadcast at the point where the electricity came back on, we were able to fire the digital recorder back up, and I was able to record the rest of the morning. Of course, that also means that the recording of all the music at the beginning of the service and Micah reading Galatians 3 to us, was all erased as well. Anyway, here's what I said. I went recently onto the Gospel Coalition website, one of the many, many websites that I went to, searching for the topic, Does the Apostle James Contradict the Apostle Paul? And what I have found very consistently across the board is that all of the Gentile commentators and all of those church-affiliated websites all attempt to harmonize James and Paul. In other words, they come to the conclusion that no, James and Paul do not contradict each other. But here is the summation statement that was made on the Gospel Coalition website. Quote, How should we understand the works that James requires. Certainly, good works are necessary, for without them we will not be justified. Okay, now hold on to that for just a moment, because the author of this article has just agreed with what James is saying, that good works are how people get justified. He has said that good works are necessary, and that without them, We will not be justified. But then the sentence continues. Certainly good works are necessary, for without them we will not be justified. But we have seen that they are not the necessary basis or foundation of justification. Does that sound to you like a contradiction? Well, it is. He has just said, you cannot be justified without good works, and then he said that those good works are not a necessary basis or foundation for justification. In other words, the phrase, certainly good works are necessary, is followed by the phrase, but we have seen that they aren't the necessary basis or foundation. And that's what happens whenever anybody tries to harmonize James and Paul. Across the board, I have looked and looked, I have read and read, I have looked at commentary after commentary, and the most common approach is that they try to harmonize the two, 
and try to say that both Paul's writing and James's writing is directed toward the same person. And that's where the confusion kicks in. Because when you say that James and Paul were both written to the same people group, that both of them had the same people in mind as they wrote, then you cannot help but say, works are necessary, but not necessary for justification. And that is confusion. I have a book in my library. I'm not necessarily advocating for the book, but it's a book defending classic dispensationalism. And the title of the book is Things That Differ. Now, the only reason that I bring it up is because there are things in the Bible that differ. And we have to recognize that. The way that the Bible speaks to Israel, the things that it says about Israel, the way that God interacts with Israel, the way that God has revealed himself to Israel and demanded obedience from Israel, is very different from how God deals with, interacts with, and expects things from Gentiles. It's two very different things. And you see that distinction, you see that contrast all the way through the Bible. These things differ. For instance, the example that I used this morning was we have been looking at Ezekiel. And at the point in Ezekiel where we're studying right now, Ezekiel is prophesying that the people who are still behind the walls of Jerusalem, who think they're safe because they're in Jerusalem, are going to be deported and their king is going to be blinded and taken into Babylon. And so I ask the question, how exactly does that apply to the church? Is the king in whom we trust ever going to be blinded? Or have we ever dwelt behind the walls of Jerusalem and then been taken into the Babylonian captivity? Well, no, none of that applies to the church directly because, as I keep saying, the Old Testament isn't about us, us Gentiles. It's not about us 21st century church folk. It is instructive. The Old Testament is written, according to Paul, for our learning, for our instruction, so that we can understand the nature of God, the character of God, the thinking of God, the ways of God. We can understand and comprehend that to a greater degree because of what's written in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament was not written about us. Sure, it is handed down to us for our instruction, but it's just not about us. Well, that same principle applies when you get into the New Testament. There are parts of the New Testament that are not about us. Helpful? Yes. Instructive? Yes. Learning things about Christian doctrine and God's dealings with Israel? Yes. The book of Matthew, for instance, is a very, very Jewish gospel. And the vast majority of it, up until the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, is about Jesus' ministry and interaction with Israelites, with the Jews. According to what we read in the Bible, in the New Testament, Peter, John, and James are specifically the apostles to the circumcision. Paul, Barnabas, they're told to go to the uncircumcision. But 
Peter, John, and James are writing to the circumcision. And we have to remember that when we read Peter, John, and James. In our men's group recently, we've been going through First and Second Peter, and it's been very, very helpful to remember the original audience that Peter was writing to, to the diaspora, to Israelites. Because much of what Peter says resonates with the Old Testament, resonates with the heritage, the history, the background that those particular people have. And so Peter can say things to them that are very specific to them because they have that common background. But Peter can't say some of those same things to Gentiles because Gentiles don't have that background. They don't have that history. They don't have that scripture. They don't have those prophets. And so for the Gentile believers, Christ is a starting place. But to the Hebrews, to the Israelites, Christ is the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy and writing and expectation. My point is, that's different, and we have to recognize those differences. When we read books like the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation was written by John, who is an apostle to the circumcision. The book of Revelation is full of Hebraisms. The book of Revelation is full of references to things like the Ark of the Covenant, like the Holy of Holies, that really only apply to somebody who has that background, who has that knowledge base, who has the scripture where these things are described. If John were writing to a Gentile audience, then he brought up a whole lot of stuff that they have no background in. They have no reference point for it. John is an apostle to Israel, which is why so much of John's writing in Revelation corresponds with what Jesus said that's recorded by Matthew in Matthew 24, because Jesus was talking among the Jews, among the Israelites, about things that are going to happen that are picked up in Revelation, and then you see the same stuff, stuff that is rooted in Daniel, and Daniel's 70th week, and the three and a half weeks, and as I've often said, every chapter of the book of Ezekiel is either quoted or alluded to in the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation is rooted and grounded in Old Testament scripture and in Matthew where Jesus is talking to Jews. That's going to be different than when Paul introduces the mystery of the Gentiles and the mystery of the rapture, the catching away of the church. All of that was revealed later and revealed specifically to the church and to the Gentiles, who are the people that Paul is writing to. We've seen a really good example recently of that kind of confusion in the fact that there were folks who claimed that on September 23rd, either the end of the world was going to happen or the rapture or some big thing was going to happen because there was an alignment of planets that placed certain planets somewhat near and inside the sphere of Virgo, the virgin in the star signs. And so since that was going to happen, they said, well, then that means that something significant like the end of the world is going to happen on that day. And they claimed that they were interpreting Revelation 12, which starts at verse 1 by saying, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. And they say, okay, the fulfillment of that is happening right now in the planetary alignments in the heavens. 
and uh, and it's lining up with the star signs and the horoscope, and therefore something's going to happen. But if you read Revelation 12, it's not just one verse, and it's all about Israel. It's not about what's happening in America. It's about what's happening in Israel. And a great sign appeared in the heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Verse 2 starts with, and, and she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on his head were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's clearly Christ. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the ascension. And, says verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that she might be nourished there for 1,260 days. That takes us all the way into the end times in the three and a half years when Israel's protected. My point is, it's all about Israel. And people far too often make the mistake of assuming that the whole Bible and everything in the Bible is about them and is about America, Westerners specifically, when in fact it's about the Middle East. It's about Israel. We also saw an example of that when there was a uh, lunar eclipse here recently, an eclipse that could be seen by a swath, a portion of America. We could see it here in Nashville very well. But a couple times a year, there are eclipses somewhere in the world. And nobody gets all excited about it. Nobody prophesies anything. But this year, because it happened in an area where we could see it in Murica, well, then we thought that it was significant. And people tried to prophesy that things were going to happen or Christ was going to come back. And because the eclipse was being seen in middle America. We Westerners, we Gentiles, have a tendency to think that the whole Bible and everything in the Bible is about us. It applies to us in some way, and it just doesn't. It just doesn't. The Bible is about God's dealings with Israel. The people who are brought into relationship with God from the Gentiles are adopted into the family, are brought to God by grace. But they don't have the background. They don't have the covenants. They don't have the prophets. They don't have the promises. They don't have the Abrahamic covenant. They don't have the law covenant. They don't have Sinai. They didn't have Moses. They don't have all of those elements that are a long-standing, deeply entrenched part of the Jewish culture, especially there in the first century as Jesus is walking and talking on the planet talking to those very same people, and it is those people that James is writing to. And so I don't think we ought to assume that James's writing necessarily applies to us because he wasn't writing to us, nor was he writing about us. Now, is it instructive to us? Yes, absolutely. Can we learn something from it? Yes, absolutely. 
Is it about us? No. Was it written to us? No. We go and we look at Paul and what Paul said in order to understand the Gentiles being brought in by faith, by grace, through God's loving kindness. And that's exactly what Paul writes in Galatians 3, that God knew he was going to justify the Gentiles by faith. So that's different than what he knew about his dealings with Israel. He knew that he was going to impose his law on Israel. He knew that he was going to make them sort of the human test case to prove that nobody could justify themselves in the flesh by attempts at keeping the law. And so nobody was justified by the works of the law. But God knew that he was going to justify Gentiles by faith. That's different. That's my point. These things are different, and we have to allow for the differences. Now, it doesn't mean that one is right and one is wrong. And it doesn't mean that one is better or one is worse. It only means that it's different because the Bible is a compilation of books about God's dealings with Israel, and then Gentiles are added into Israel's promises of salvation through Israel's God, Yahweh, via Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. The promise of the Holy Spirit was given to Israel, but the Holy Spirit then came to Gentiles. And I think far too many people put the cart before the proverbial horse, and they read the Bible thinking, this is all about Gentiles. This is all about me. This is all about God's dealings with the 21st century church. And as a consequence, we get confused when we come up against passages that are clearly not about us, not written to us. We can learn from them. We can be educated by them. We can expand our knowledge of who God is and what he's like from these, but they're simply not to us. And whenever you conflate the idea of Israel and the church, and you say that Israel is the church of the Old Testament, and that the church is Israel in the New Testament, that conflation of ideas means that everything in the Bible is about the church. And there's no way that you can harmonize Paul saying that we are saved by faith with no works to the man who worketh not. God justifies that man by faith, through faith. There's no way to harmonize that with James saying that we are justified by works and not by faith alone. Those two things, those two ideas, stand in contradistinction to each other. And it's okay to say that they stand in contradistinction to each other because they are written to two different audiences. And I'll say again, I think it's very difficult for us here in the 21st century to really understand the mindset of the first century Jew who is deeply entrenched in the culture, in the heritage, everybody around them, everyone in their community is all keeping the law and it's all about doing stuff and sacrificing animals. And then someone says, the Messiah is here, which is the continuation of the Jewish hope. The Messiah is here. Well, then, of course, that community 
and James in particular writing to that community, would say faith in Christ now is very important and the law can't help you, but doing stuff is still important. The question is, does James overemphasize the necessity of works and does Paul balance it out from James's extreme? Or does Paul say no works and then you're justified by faith and James is balancing him out by saying, yes, you need works. That's the way that people normally deal with it. And then they try to harmonize it and they try to explain it. And they say things like, well, Paul is talking about justification before God and James is talking about justification before other men. (sighs) No, none of that. Allow the Bible to say what it says. Stand toe-to-toe with the Bible. Allow it to say, to Gentiles, through the apostle to the Gentiles, allow it to say, faith, no works. James, writing to a Hebrew audience, a Jewish group of people who have been keeping works for thousands of years, let him say, you're justified now by faith and works. Now, we may bristle at that idea. We, 21st century Gentiles, who have the advantage of all the Pauline theology and all the Pauline letters, we have the New Testament, we have a fuller theology, we may bristle at the idea that James would say it's faith and works. But remember the time and the place that James was writing. Remember the people he was writing to and take into account that within that heritage, within that culture, works was a very vital part of their religion. And now Jesus has come along, the Messiah has come along, he identifies him. And by the way, remember, James didn't believe in his brother as the Messiah during Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry. Apparently, it wasn't until after the resurrection that James understood that his brother was the Messiah. And so James is starting from that point. He's starting from being zealous for the law. He's starting from being deeply entrenched in Judaism. And now Jesus is the Messiah, and he is trying to figure out how to incorporate Jesus into the religion of the Jews. And the religion of the Jews is all about do stuff. And so James says, faith not the law, and do stuff. And that's how you're justified. Now, somewhere in the midst of saying all that, the electricity went off. And all of that that I said this morning disappeared. And I even said to the congregation, I think everything I've said so far has disappeared. Now, I was stomping my feet. And I was saying that I believe that not allowing the Bible to say what it says, not allowing James to speak and Paul to speak, and not recognizing what they said within the historic context in which they say it, is tantamount to being a denial of the Scripture, not allowing the Bible to just say what it says and then deal with it at face value based on what it says. Far too often, people just ignore James or discount James or or just don't preach on James, or only take out the few phrases they like, like resist the devil and he'll flee from you. There, I like that. I can use that in a name it, claim it kind of way. But it's very difficult to find people who will treat the book of James fairly for what it says, 
not try to harmonize it with Paul. I will say that Jewish writers who understand the Bible from a Jewish perspective seem to have a better handle on the book of James in my reading. But let it say what it says and accept it for what it says because it's not to us Gentiles and it's not about us Gentiles. It's about and to Israelite believers, the diaspora, the Jews who were deeply entrenched in the law. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, follow his theology, which is the theology of grace, because that is to us, for us, and about us. I hope that makes sense. Now, we'll join this morning's message, already in progress. So, for those of you on the internet, you just missed a, a rollicking first 20 minutes, and, and then the electricity died, and it all went away. If you want to preach this over, I'll come listen. If I want to preach it over, you'll come listen? I will. Okay, well, I can summarize it this way. America! Yeah. Okay, that's, that's pretty much it. That's all you really need to know. Things differ. That's my point. Things differ. You have to understand the difference between God's dealings with Israel and God's dealings with Gentiles. The reason for this entire prolonged introduction was because as soon as you get that, you now understand that there are two different people groups being addressed in the Bible. And then carry that over into the New Testament. Paul is writing to one audience, the Gentiles, the ones who have been adopted, the ones who have been brought in by grace, the ones that God is grafted in, the ones that God is using specifically to make Israel jealous. That group, that's who Paul is writing to. The group, the Jews, the Israelites, even though they are scattered out of Jerusalem and hence called the diaspora, that group is the group that James is writing to. And the differences that you see between James and Paul can be simply explained by the two different audiences. And as soon as you see the two different audiences, most of what would otherwise be the conflict and contradiction disappears. It just goes away. Now, people will continue to argue about it, and people will try to complicate it, and people will try to say, no, no, we can harmonize it this way or that way. But I argue it's not necessary to harmonize it. All that's necessary is to understand, what's that word? The Bible. All you have to do is understand that the Old Testament isn't about us. Written for us, Paul says, written for our admonition and learning, sure. But it's not about us. It's about Israel. And much of the New Testament is not about us. For us, yes. Educational, yes. Helpful, absolutely. But it's not directly to us. You want an example? We're not appointed to wrath. That's Paul talking to the people he's writing to, the Gentiles. We're not appointed to wrath. Why? Because our salvation is based on faith and based on grace. And so, since our salvation is completely secure, and Christ took our wrath in our place on Golgotha, for that reason, we are not appointed to wrath. Very good news. 
But now that we know we're not appointed to wrath, what is Matthew 24 about? It's about wrath. And people going through wrath. People who are going through wrath who are referred to specifically in the book of Revelation and Matthew 24 as saints. Hagios. God's people. Who are they? Who are the people who are going to go through Daniel's 70th week if we're told we're going to be raptured? Okay, that's a difference. That's all I'm driving at. There is this big difference between the two people groups. And all you have to do is understand the difference between the people groups to understand the difference between what James says and what Paul says. Is that obvious enough? So we're going to look at what James says, and we're going to look at what Paul says, and we're going to see the differences. The differences exist, but it's okay, as I said last week, it's okay to admit that the differences exist. Because the differences exist because the audiences are different. Things differ. Got it? Got it. Okay. Turn to James 2. That's where we're starting. We will take the first part of the chapter as given since we talked about it last week. Do not show partiality within the church. But it is necessary that we understand that that is the context within which James talks about the necessity of good works. Because he's saying it is a good work for you to love your brother as you love yourself. That is a good thing for you to look after your brethren. And so that good work of looking after each other is something that James says is necessary within the church. And that's what leads into his argument about good works. Starting at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. And you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, then you have become a transgressor of the law. This is an important thing to remember. Both Paul and James admit that the law can't save you because we are all natural lawbreakers. Notice also what James does here, though. He treats the law, the law at Sinai, as one big cohesive unit, which is why he can say if you break any one part of it, you're guilty of all of it. The idea that the law is broken down into moral and ceremonial and civil is something that the church has manufactured over years. 
It's a standard part of covenantal theology and the desire to keep the law somehow imposed on the conscience of the church, the Gentile church. And as I stressed earlier, we weren't there. We're not part of that law. We're not part of that covenant. When the Judaizers came into Galatia and attempted to impose some part of the law, in that case circumcision, they tried to impose some part of the law on Gentiles, Paul withstood them adamantly because Gentiles aren't part of that covenant. You're not supposed to impose that covenant on the Gentile church because the Gentile church is saved by grace through faith. And so James and Paul agree that the law is one big cohesive whole and you either have to keep all of it continually, constantly, perfectly or you're guilty under the law. It doesn't matter if you say, well, you know, the ceremonial parts of the law, like the priesthood and the animal sacrifice and the temple and all that, that's done away with. But then there's the moral law, and the moral law still applies to Christians. We need, still need to apply that part. But then the civil law, some parts of it, like building a fence on your roof or wearing mixed fabrics, you know, that doesn't count. But some parts of the civil law about how you treat your neighbor, that still counts. That's not, no, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't allow you to do that. The Bible always says that the law at Sinai is one big cohesive unit. You're either under it or you're not. And if you're in Christ, you're part of the not group. And because you're part of the not group, don't let anybody impose the law on you because you are saved by the grace of God without the works of the law. Isn't that exactly what we heard? Without the works of the law. Why? Because we're simply not under the law. The law is not imposed on us. And James and Paul both agree that if you are under the law and you break the law in any one part, you're guilty of the whole law. And if you're guilty of the whole law, what's the punishment? The wrath of God that is written right into the law. That God is going to judge lawbreakers. That's one of the definitions of sin. People who break the law. So you don't want to be under the law. You don't want any part of the law. People who say to you, you got a tithe, are trying to impose the law on you again. People who say you got to make sure you meet on the Sabbath, they're trying to impose the law on you again. Anybody who tries to live up to the law and then tell you that you have to live up to some amount of it too, they're not only deceiving themselves, but because misery loves company, they're trying to drag you down with them. Grace. Grace, abounding grace, merciful grace, unending grace, unerring grace. That's how you're saved. Now, should you react to that reality by living a life that is honorable to God? Yes, absolutely. And Paul agrees with that 100% that we're going to walk in the good works that God has ordained that we walk in. Yes, absolutely. But that is a reaction to the fact that we are joyously saved by grace. And because it's grace, it had nothing to do with us. It had nothing to do with us. When God found you, you were filthy. 
When God found you, you were corrupt. When God found you, you were not keeping the law or doing well. He didn't look at you and say, there's one of the good ones. I need to go get him. God saves by absolute, complete, sovereign grace. That's how Gentiles get saved. And if that's the case, stop thinking that some part of what you do is somehow going to make you better or worse in God's economy. Look, if you didn't start this thing, you can't end this thing. And if you didn't start this thing, you can't improve this thing. It's not up to you. It's up to the God of grace who chose you, who elected you, who sent his son to die for you, who drew you to himself. I think if we could ever truly, genuinely get a hold of the grace of God that has saved wretched Gentiles like us, we'd never stop singing, celebrating, and saying amen and thank you. But we so immediately, so constantly, so we're so egotistic, we want to believe that we did something. There was something, right? I did something. There's some reason that God chose me, or at least since he chose me, I've lived up. Since he chose me, I've done a little better. Since he chose me, now I'm being kept by the fact that I'm doing good. No, you're not. And you know you're not. If you take a good close look at yourself, you know you're not. If you're doing a little bit better, that's God's grace in you. That's God's spirit in you acting as a governor on you. If he took that spirit away, you'd go right back to every bit of depravity you've ever exercised in your life. You'd find whole new ways to be corrupt, and you know you would. It's God's grace that chose you, that saved you, that kept you, and that is keeping you all the way home. And you didn't start it, and you can't end it. So being in that, this is all a work of grace. Is there, I ask again, that's the reason that I kept emphasizing grace and building up. It's grace. It's all grace. It's completely grace. It's grace from beginning to end. Knowing all that, where exactly then does the law fit in that equation? Where exactly does the law fit? Where do you impose it? Where do you wiggle in some law? Where can you impose some law on people who have been blood-bought, who have been grace-saved, who have been spirit-filled, where exactly do you need to impose some law on them? Where? Well, that's Paul's argument in Galatians 3 that Micah read this morning. There's no point, there's no purpose to a law if you've already begun with the Spirit, if you've already begun with the works of God. If that's already existent in you, where does the law improve any of that? And yet, because we're naturally legalists, we just want to, in our religious economy, we want to impose some amount of law on people. Because if you impose law on people, you can control people. And our ego is such that we want to control people. And far too much of what's called the church in America, far too much of the church is about controlling people. And yelling at people to just do better. And that's not what the Bible is about. The Bible is about sovereign grace. And I think if we could ever get a hold of the reality that God adopted us, God brought us into the family, God forgave us, God loved us with an everlasting love. If we could ever get a hold of that, 
we would finally begin worshiping a right. We would finally sing like we meant it. We would finally praise that God. And when people say something against that God to us, we wouldn't care. We'd go, oh, then you don't know the God I'm talking about. Because the God I'm talking about saves me. Saves me. Not just improves me. Not just makes my life slightly better. He saved me from his own wrath. Okay, so that's the group that Paul is talking to. You get the group now? Okay. James says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law. The law, one big cohesive unit. The law stands or falls Altogether, you can't subdivide the law. You can't break up the law. The law stands as a monolithic unit. It will condemn you if you are any part of it. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in any one point, he has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you do commit murder then you've become a transgressor of the law. So we know what law he's talking about. He's talking about the Sinaitic law. So speak and so act, says verse 12, as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. He's drawn a contrast. You don't want to be judged by the law of Moses. You don't want to be judged by the law of Sinai. You're guilty under it. Okay, quick survey. How many of you have ever broken any part of the law? I better see every hand in here. Every Micah, put your hand. Get, get your. Some of you had two hands up. You've broken the law. Well, then you're guilty before the law. So if you're judged by the law, what's going to happen to you? God is going to have to pass sentence on you. So instead, James says, so when you're dealing with your brethren in the church, the rich and the poor, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law of freedom, by the nomos, the teaching, the instruction of liberty. And that can only come through Christ. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I got to spend a minute on this because I didn't get a chance to last week. First off, verse 13 is the antithesis of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to look it up, Matthew 5, 7, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they will obtain mercy. James, who's very, very influenced again by the wisdom literature and by the Sermon on the Mount, says the inverse of that. He says, judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. But mercy, and don't miss this, mercy triumphs over judgment. And the word that he used there is, it's more than just triumphs, it's, it's boasts. That mercy boasts over judgment. In other words, 
It's the ability to look judgment in the eye and say, you got nothing on me. You can't touch me. It's the better, higher law. It's the ability to look at judgment and go, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> you can't get me judgment. Why? Because mercy has taken over. Grace has taken over. Because the grace of God is a complete grace, and the mercy of God includes not giving you what you do deserve. And since God is not going to give you what you do deserve, you get to mock judgment. You get to stand before judgment and say, nothing. You got nothing on me. You can't touch me. And I like that idea. I like that attitude that mercy boasts, triumphs over judgment. Because being the natural legalist that I am, it's easy for me every once in a while to get fearful of God's judgment. Don't you sometimes get fearful of God's judgment? What can God do to people that he really wants to punish? And yet he says that if you understand mercy, if you understand the grace of God, if you understand the goodness of God that chose you before the foundation of the world, not only do you not have to fear that judgment, but you can boast against it. You can stand against it and say, you got nothing on me. Because God redeemed me. Good plan. Good plan. So in that context, after understanding that you're not to show partiality in the church and that you're supposed to abide by the royal law, you're going to judge your neighbor as yourself. Now that you understand that, you can understand James saying, starting at verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works. Can that faith save him? Now, I will tell you that James's answer is going to be, not really. Paul's answer is going to be, yeah, completely. These differ, but they differ to different audiences. Here's James's argument. If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? That's just logical. I agree with that. If you have the wherewithal to help somebody, but you don't help them, but you say something that sounds holy and righteous to them, oh, that's a shame you're going through that. Yeah, I, I have a whole closet full of clothes. I could probably put some clothes on you. And I've got a refrigerator full of food. I could probably feed you. I've got a couple bucks in my wallet. I could probably take you to McDonald's and buy you a hamburger. I could, I could do all that. But you know what? Be blessed. God love you. I'll pray for you. And all too often, I do think that that becomes the escape clause for far too many Christians who have the wherewithal to actually help but instead of helping, they just say, well, I'll pray for you. James argues, and it's a good argument, that if you have the ability to feed or clothe somebody and you don't do it, but you just say, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, you haven't helped them. When was the last time you said to a really, truly, genuinely hungry person, oh, be filled, and then they were full? When was the last time that ever worked? What they need is food. 
they don't need your lofty sounding language. They need you to go somewhere, buy them some food and give it to them. And in that way, you show the mercy of God. In that way, you show the loveliness of Christ. If you have the ability to help, then help. If you have the clothes, if you have the food, if you have the money, if you have the wherewithal, then help those who need help, especially then those within the church, the brethren. Now think about the context. Obviously, James is saying, you that are rich within the church, you that are getting partiality, don't lord it over those that have nothing, those that are poor. If you have clothes, you have food, you have money, give it to them. So that not only is there no partiality in the church, but that there is charity within the church. There is mercy within the church. Even so, having said all that, verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. There's James's conclusion. Now, would Paul agree with that conclusion? What do you think? Probably not, except that Paul does argue you're going to do good works. Peter does argue that you should make your calling and election sure, secure. How? By following up with good works. So there is similarity in the idea that once you have faith in God and been saved by God, that you'll do the good works. The difference is that James makes it a necessity for your justification, whereas Paul would say, you are justified, therefore do the good works. See the difference? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Again, don't neglect the context. The context has to do with taking care of each other within the church, taking care of brethren, feeding and clothing the poor, not showing partiality within the church, doing those good works of taking care of each other. But then he argues, if you've got faith, if you believe in God and you say, I've got all this faith, but we can't see the good works, then where is the demonstration of your faith? Here's how James puts it. He says, but someone may well say, verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. So he is arguing that faith can't be demonstrated to other people without some kind of work, that there has to be an outward demonstrative example for people to understand your faith. Here's how Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown deal with this verse. They say, faith is unseen, save by God. But to show faith to man, works in some form or other are needed. We are justified judicially by God. That's Romans 8.33. We're justified meritoriously by Christ, Isaiah 53.11. We are justified mediatively by our faith and we are saved evidentially by our works so the question here is not as to the ground on which believers are justified but about the demonstration of their faith and so is the case in Abraham because he's going to bring Abraham up now so again this attempt to harmonize it all ends up saying well 
justification before God and faith toward God is something between you and God. But if you need to demonstrate your faith to other people, then you have to have good works to accompany the faith so that the faith is evident. That becomes the argument. The only problem with it is, I don't know if I accept the argument. And the reason that I don't know if I accept the argument is because I don't care about your judgment of me. If God is satisfied with me, and if God knows my faith, and if God has put his spirit in me that has produced good works, I don't care whether you sit in judgment on my works to determine whether I have faith or not. That doesn't really mesh with the way I think. And I don't think it meshes with the way Paul thinks. But it is the way that James thinks. So we have to understand that James is arguing that your good works are a demonstration of your faith. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And it's in that context that he says, you believe that God is one. That's right. Every Jew he's writing to would believe the Shema. They would all believe the Lord our God, he is one God. They would all believe that. But he then says, you do well that you believe that, but the demons also believe that and shudder. Now, I have used that verse out of context many times in my life against people who will say, well, I just generally believe in nature or God generally, but I don't believe in Jesus specifically. And I'm quick to point out, well, well fine, but the devils believe that. The devils believe God exists. But what James is getting at here is you can have adequate faith in God, which is what he's saying by repeating the Shema. If you believe that the Lord our God, he is one God, that was the, the Jewish center of their religious belief. If you believe that, you had faith in God. He is saying that's not adequate. You also have to have works to accompany that declaration of faith because that declaration of faith is a declaration of faith that even devils and demons have. They agree that God exists. They agree. What don't they have? They don't have the good works that accompany that faith, is James's argument. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works, I think the King James says, is dead, the NASB says, is useless. That faith without works is useless. Useless in what way? I keep trying to dig behind James's thought process and why he's saying these things in this order and trying to remember the context always. I think he's saying within the church, if you come into the church, and you are well-dressed, and you've got the ring and everything else, but you're being shown favoritism, and the people who are poor and the people who have nothing are being set aside, stand over there, sit over there, the important people, they're going to be up here with us. That, James has argued, is sin. And now he's arguing it doesn't do you any good to come to church and confess that you have faith. It doesn't do you any good to come and say, I believe in God and I believe the Shema and I believe God is one God. It doesn't 
do you any good to just do that if there are poor people with you who you could help but you haven't helped them that seems to be the essence of the argument but are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow that faith without works is useless was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son on the altar are you familiar with the story turn to Genesis 22 for a minute Genesis 22 is where you find the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac and over the years I have heard all kinds of allegories about the sacrifice of Isaac and people who have tried to draw parallels correlations between Christ and Isaac that Isaac was a willing sacrifice I don't see anywhere in the story where Isaac's a willing sacrifice I argue and I think you'll see from the details I think Isaac is us because Isaac if we're going to allegorize Isaac is the one who ends up with the fire underneath him and the sword of death over him. I mean, I don't know where that's Christ. Christ is the ram caught in the thicket. Christ is the substitute. Christ is the one who's actually sacrificed so that Isaac goes free. Uh, that's the way I see these details. Let's read it real quickly. Starting at chapter 22, oh, we'll start at verse 1. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now recognize that before this, Abraham has been told, In Isaac shall your seed be called. In Isaac, your posterity is going to continue. And Isaac specifically is the child of promise, not your firstborn, not that one you had with the handmaid Hagar. Oh, no, it's not Ishmael that's going to get your birthright. No, it's, it's this child of promise who came about miraculously after you and your wife were too old to have children. He's the one through whom this great posterity is going to be more than the sands of the sea, more than the stars of the heavens, those are going to be your descendants, and they're going to come through Isaac. Now kill Isaac. And so that's going to be a test. So Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go yonder and we will worship. And the implication is we will return to you. Okay, now he knows why he's going up on the mountain. He's going up on the mountain to kill Isaac. And yet he says, we're going to go worship and then we're going to return. We'll be back. Because he knows he has the promise that Isaac is the seed through which his entire posterity comes. So he believes that he's going to go and sacrifice Isaac just like God said. And that God is somehow going to have to raise him up again. Because God has promised it. 
Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac his son so that his son would carry it. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together and Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, there's fire and there's wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. That was his faith, that God was going to provide the lamb. Now, in the original Hebrew, there's two ways to read that statement. Either God will provide for himself a lamb, or God will provide himself a lamb. He will provide himself as a lamb. And so, whichever way you want to read it, it is still foretelling substitutionary atonement, and that God is going to provide a lamb. So Abraham is going up there with his son, with the intention of killing his son, believing that God is not going to let that happen, or God's going to raise him up from the dead, but God's going to provide a sacrifice that's suitable for God. They came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there, and he arranged the wood, and he bound his son Isaac, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. At that point, do you think Isaac figured something was up? Oh, oh, wait, I thought God was going to provide a lamb. Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, about time. (laughs) I'm sorry. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. By the way, interesting phrase. Was that his only son? No. He had Ishmael with Hagar. But in God's reckoning, that's your only son. Because that's the son of promise. That's the one who your posterity is going to go through. That's the one that has the land promise. That's the one who's going to carry the Abrahamic promise. So that becomes your only son. Then Abraham raised his eyes and he looked and behold... Behind him, a ram in a thicket by his thorns. Think of the imagery. That is a lamb of God. If he's in thorns around his head, then that is a perfect typology of Christ with the crown of thorns around his head, a sacrifice provided by God to substitute for Isaac, who's just about to die. And Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, Behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham the second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sands which are on the seashore and your seed shall possess all the gates of their enemies and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Go back to James. James sees in that story, he sees an example 
of Abraham being justified by his works. Now, he agrees with Paul that he's justified by his faith. That happened 25 years earlier, roughly, in the life of Abraham. Abraham was told, you're going to have a child. You're going to have this promise from me. You're going to have a land. You're going to have this great posterity. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so faith counted for righteousness. Faith justified Abraham. But then James brings up the story we just read to say, not only was he justified by faith, but added to his faith were these good works. He did this good work of taking his child and being willing to sacrifice him. But look at Galatians 3 for just a moment, which was read for us this morning by Micah. Galatians 3, starting at verse 6, says, this is Paul's take on it, even so Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness, therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Look at how specific that language is. Paul says, God knowing that he was going to justify Gentiles by faith. He didn't say Israelites. He didn't say he's going to justify the Israelites that way. He's going to justify the Gentiles, and God knew he was going to do that. Therefore, Abraham, while still a Gentile, was justified by his faith, so that all those who are likewise justified by faith... What did I just say? Why are you Abraham's a Gentile? Yeah, Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was the first Hebrew, which means wanderer. He was the first one who was told, go to a land, I'll show it to you. Before he was even circumcised, before God began the posterity of Israel through his seed, at that point God chose him, brought him out of Ur, and made a covenant with him, an unconditional covenant with him. And so Paul's argument, which is a brilliant argument, is if God could do that for Abraham and give him righteousness in exchange for faith, well, then, to every other Gentile on the planet who has faith, God also accredits righteousness. He justifies him. Where does work show up? It doesn't. Not in Paul's economy. Not in Paul's thinking. Why? Because Paul's talking to Gentiles. When talking to Gentiles, he brings up that God was foreseeing that he would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's why he preached that good news beforehand to Abraham, saying, all nations, not just your nation, not just Israelites, not just Jews, but all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. The emphasis is on the believing, on the faith. The Gentiles are justified by God through faith. Turn to the book of Hebrews for a moment. Turn to Hebrews 11. Now, I think it's arguable that Paul, if he didn't write the book of Hebrews, the theology is certainly Pauline, but it's also being written to a Hebrew audience, obviously, hence the name. The early church fathers, when they collected the books of the New Testament, always put the book of Hebrews in with the writing of Paul. 
they believed that Paul was the source for the book of Hebrews. So we get a little insight into the Pauline thought on Abraham killing Isaac. Here's what it says in Hebrews 11:17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendant shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. In other words, when Paul looked at that same scenario, he didn't come away with his works justified him. Instead, he said he did that because of his faith. He put the emphasis back on the faith that justified. And then he gave examples of Abraham's faith. That when Abraham said to the young men, we're going to go worship and we'll be back, that that was an example of faith. That when he said, God's going to offer a sacrifice, God's going to bring us a substitute, that was an example of faith. So James viewed it and said, that's a work. And that work helped give example to the justification that Abraham already had by faith when he believed God in the first place. Got that? Paul says it's an example of Abraham's faith and continuity of his faith continuing on. So they're both looking at the exact same moment in Hebrew history, and they're seeing it from two different views. One is arguing the works demonstrate the faith. The other is the faith is the reason for the works. It's different, but it's also similar. And it's written to two different audiences, one of whom believes in doing good works, who have had 1,400 years of the law, and the doing, and the doing, and the doing. And to that audience, James can emphasize that you don't just have faith, but you have to have works that give example to the faith. And he uses Abram as his example. To Paul, writing to Gentiles, he says, it's faith, it's all faith. Your justification comes by faith. He looks at the same example of Abraham and says, see, it is faith. Get it? Okay, that differs, but it's okay to say it differs. It's impossible to harmonize the two outside of saying that they both agree faith and works. It's where you place the emphasis. So now James says, and then we'll be done. I'm sorry to keep you, but I'm back in James. I'm in chapter 2. I'm in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. In other words, the way that you see that Abraham's faith was at work was because of the works he did. So he keeps putting the emphasis on the work. You see by the work that that is an example of his faith. You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, his faith was completed or perfected, filled up. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. So he goes back to that first event 25 years earlier 
Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. That's Abraham being justified. But then he says, when Abraham took Isaac up to sacrifice him, those were works that were an example of his faith. And by that example, he completed or filled up his justification and his faith. You got all that? Now, the next part is going to be really easy. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. I was being sarcastic when I said the next part's easy because this is where it gets really thick now. Because you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now he's making works part of your justification. Paul says, Ephesians 2, you know this, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, so that no man can boast. That's the inverse of what we just read. Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Galatians 2.15, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. There's separation, there's distinction. Verse 16, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. So justification is not by works, according to Paul. Next week we are going to start by reading the first 16 verses of Romans 4, because Paul is going to become adamant at that point that we are justified by faith with no works. He's going to say, to him that worketh not, to him that does no works, God justifies him by grace, if he has faith in Christ. And we're going to talk again about the apparent contradiction between that and James saying, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Can you see now why, if you take what Paul says and what James says and try to apply both parts to Jennifer, she's going to get confused because we're going to end up saying what I read to you at the beginning of today. We're going to end up saying, works are absolutely necessary, but not really. They're not the, gra the ground or the basis of your justification, but they are. And she's going to say, well, what is it? What are you trying to teach me? What, what do you want from me? Do I work or not? Do I, where's my justification come from? And that is a result of collapsing the idea of the church and Israel. You've got to keep them separate. You have to recognize that they differ, and you have to recognize who the different biblical authors are writing to and writing about. If you don't do that, you'll get confused, as Jennifer just was. Well, yeah, well nearly. 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 She's got nothing. So, all right, I'm sorry to keep you quite that I'm not sorry to keep you that long. How much time can you give God? Can you give him two hours? You know, what do, what do you want? There, I just made you feel guilty. So, I hesitate to say this. Go ahead, what are your questions? Okay. Can James and Paul both be right 
if James is saying you have to be justified by works. And added on to that, it seems like James is a little bit contradicting himself because he talks about keeping works, you know, if you transgress any part of the law, you've transgressed the whole law. So, I don't know. I think James and Paul both agree that you can't be justified by the law. They get that. Mm -hmm. They both agree with that. But last week, Megan asked the same question. She said, well, then are we saying that James is wrong? I don't believe that I have the jurisdiction to say James is wrong. All I can agree is that James and Paul have different emphases. And the reason that I'm okay with that difference is because of the different audiences and because of the history of the audience of the Jews and the religion of the Jews that is all involved in do stuff. I emphasized last week, and I'm going to do it again, and I'm glad you brought it up for this reason. The people that James is writing to are a unique people in human history. There will never again be a first generation of Jews being converted to Christianity. That is a unique and distinct moment in time. And James is writing to those people. And this is the transition from 1,400 years of do stuff to faith in Christ. And so James says, yes, faith in Christ, and no, you can't be saved by the law. But then he puts an emphasis on continuing to do works, but he puts a new emphasis again on it by saying, but your works demonstrate that you have faith. But then his example of faith is the same faith that the Jews have always had, the Shema. He goes back, as his example of faith, he goes back to you believe that God is one God. He doesn't use the finished work of Christ as his example of faith. He defines faith as you believe in the oneness of God. But now add works to it. Because the devils don't do that. You know, they believe that. They know he's one God. But you have to add works in order to demonstrate that you have faith. So, is it wrong? No. Within the historic context, which is really hard for us to wrap our brains around, within the historic context, writing to the people he's writing to, I kind of get it. He's trying to help them transition. I see what he's doing. I see what he's saying. Yeah. Um... Would I ever preach the book of James to the church openly? Hey, get busy and do work. No, never, because I see the difference. The church of the Gentiles is not who he's writing to. Therefore, I won't impose James rules on the church. I'll impose Pauline theology of grace on the church because that's the proper apostle to us. I find it interesting that he's talking about the law all the way up until verse 14. Then it transitions to just talking about works in general and not specifically keeping the actual law. Well, he's also already told you about the perfect law of liberty and the royal law Mm -hmm. and that kind of do unto others thing and taking care of your brethren like yourself. He's already defined that and put it into that nomos language. He already calls these things laws. But it's not the law. It's not that law from Sinai thing. So 
Why does he think that way? Because he's a Jew who's steeped in law. So he can't help but think of these things. Take care of your brothers. Okay, he can't help but think of it as a law. Here's a new law. And the law of liberty. You see, the language is so steeped in ancient Hebrew theology and religion that I think that you can't help but see the continuation of, of that religious thought in James's writing. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. Yes, ma'am. Sorry, I'm kind of so struggling with it because the You've been struggling with it. Have you been watching me up here for the last hour and 20? Read the rest of that. It's about the one new man, whether Jew or Gentile, that in Christ they are made into one new man. And that's the context in which he's saying, for that one new man, there's one spirit. One faith. faith. Right. And, And what is that one faith? The fact that the law cannot save you, only the finished work of Christ can save you. That's the one faith. I got asked this week on Facebook, (laughs) are you preaching two different kinds of salvation? Are you preaching two different gospels, one for the Jew and one for the Gentile? The answer is no, but that's why I keep having to go back, like I did with Kellen a minute ago, and say, think about that first generation of Jews. Think about that transition. Think about the book of Hebrews. What is that really about? That is about telling Jews who have come to Christ, you can't go back now. There's nothing to go back to. So, no, I am not preaching two different gospels. The one gospel is salvation in Christ and Christ alone. So I'm not preaching that there is a separate gospel for believing Jews than believing Gentiles. There is only one faith, one hope, one baptism, one spirit. That is all true. Mm-hmm. Are you saying two justifications? I didn't say it. I'm asking. No, I, I think there is one way that Gentiles are justified. They're justified by grace. I've emphasized that over and over again. And Jews as well. But James says to that specific audience that he thinks that justification is also by works. That's why I kept saying, I won't preach that. I won't say that. But I understand why James said it, because I understand who he said it to. You won't preach that to Gentiles? Or I won't preach that to Gentiles. I won't preach that to Jews. I'll say to any Jew, come to Christ and give up all that law-keeping and give up all that self-justifying, because the Bible repeatedly says no man's justified by the flesh. I would say that to anybody. I'm only preaching one gospel. But I do understand why James wrote what he wrote when he wrote it to whom he wrote it. That I get. That's a historic reality. So James was saying it in a way to try to make it more understandable for them, but not an actual reality? No. 
I didn't say that. I believe that James was fully convinced of everything he said. Here, maybe this will make it easier. You and I don't know what it's like to live in a community that for 1,400 years has been under the restrictions of the law, where every day you wake up and start doing everything according to what has been dictated to you by the scribes, by the Pharisees, by the law, by the, uh, the endless amount of rabbinical teaching, where it's just a life of do, 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 constantly. You and I don't know what that's like. But you take a person like James, who has grown up in that, who's been steeped in that all his life, who didn't believe in Christ during Christ's own ministry, who apparently didn't believe in Christ, his own brother, as the Savior, the Messiah, until the resurrection. And now he doesn't have the New Testament to go to. He doesn't have the resources we have. But he's going to sit down and write two other people who have the same background he has, who has the same series of doing in that community, and he's going to write to them and say, now it's Christ. Is a certain amount of that history and background and tradition going to seep into his thinking? Yes, of course. He's not just going to wake up one day and go, there, I throw off every shackle I ever had of all that is just Christ and you're justified by faith. I don't think he has the ability to just make that radical transition instantaneously. But that's also why I keep saying it's to a specific audience who were unique in human history. It was the first century of Jews who were steeped in that religion who are now making the transition to Christianity. There, there's a tension between James and Paul, and that tension exists. But then it's Peter who has to stand up and say, well, let me tell you what God did among the Gentiles for me. And he talks about, Sam, about being at Simon the Tanner's house and about being drawn to Cornelius and how God gave the same spirit that we're getting to Gentiles. So then are we supposed to impose the law on them? What are we supposed to do? And so James ends up saying, well, don't impose anything else on them except that they don't worship idols or eat things strangled in blood. And so... Yes, that early church period, there was that transition and that tension, and much of the tension revolved around not that we Gentiles don't understand the Jewish approach to it, it's that the Jews didn't understand God bringing Gentiles into it. So We've just turned it upside down. So yes. This, so you're really thinking James is really something that is to a specific people for that period, for yeah. that I think this is James's best understanding of what's going on at this moment within the Jewish community. Yes. But it's God breathed. It's part of scripture. God gave it to him. Right? Yeah. Okay. So he's not wrong in what he says. He can't. Which goes back to the original question. When people have asked me, is he wrong? I've said no. But you have to consider the audience he's writing to. And it probably helped his audience quite a bit in that transition, which was I would say so. But it's sure. But it's not for us. We shouldn't take it and say, but oh, it's not for I us. I need to take the law, and that's my work, so that I'm justified. Right. We don't go back to right. Can we learn from it? Yes. Is it about us? No. It's not about us. Anything else? I know this is tough stuff, 
But for 2,000 years, people have been arguing about this. That's why I mentioned last week. There are are prominent church fathers who have just kind of dismissed James and said, well, then it doesn't belong in the Scripture. It doesn't belong in here with the other stuff. I say it does, along with the book of Hebrews and along with books like Revelation, which people try to Gentilize, but it's actually a very Jewish book. I've learned a tremendous amount from the Gospel of Matthew. It wasn't written to me. It's not about me, but it certainly has helped me. I've learned a lot from it. Martin Luther was absolutely one of those. And so that's why I think it's important to always keep the Bible in its historic context as well as its language context because that's the only way you're going to understand it. Now look, we could, if we wanted to, we could choose to just ignore the books in the Bible that we find difficult. That's what far too many churches do. They just avoid it so there's no controversy. I'd rather face it head on, stand toe to toe with it, and understand it. And the understanding process sometimes means we got to talk about all this and ask these questions and figure this stuff out. Yeah, you, you talked about, you mentioned Ephesians 2, 8, and, and 9. Yeah. Um, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. You know, immediately after that, he talks about works. You know, we're saved by his workmanship yeah. created in Christ Jesus. For, for good, good works. works. But he doesn't give us any credit for that. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, that's yeah. a gift, right? Yeah. So that seems to me to be the difference. The difference is uh, a difference in emphasis, like I said. Even when Paul looks at the Abraham story, he doesn't say the works matter. He says it was faith that caused the works. Right. Yeah. So he's consistent with himself, and James is consistent with himself. James also kind of saying, look, if you have true faith, it's going to show. You know, you can't just say I have faith and, and there be no evidence of it. And I think Paul would agree, would with, agree that. with that. And Jesus, you know, yeah. know a tree by its The word. difference between them would be when James just out and out says, you're justified by works. There's the difference. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.